0: First reading is from Isaiah 35, 1 to 6. This was written many hundreds of years before Jesus. Isaiah speaks of a time when God would restore the fortunes of his people. They would no longer suffer in fear, but enjoy peace and rest. The desert and the parched land will be glad. The wilderness will rejoice and blossom. Like the crocus, it will burst into bloom. It will rejoice greatly and shout for joy. The glory of Lebanon will be given to it, the splendour of Carmel and Sharon. They will see the glory of the Lord, the splendour of our God. Strengthen the feeble hands, steady the knees that give way. Say to those with fearful hearts, be strong and do not fear. Your God will come. He will come with vengeance, with divine retribution. He will come to save you. Then will the eyes of the blind be opened and the ears of the deaf unstopped. Then will the lame leap like a deer and the mute tongue shout for joy. Water will gush forth in the wilderness and streams in the desert. Next reading is from John chapter 20 verses 19 to 31. As we turn to the gospel of John now, Jesus has already appeared to Mary. Today we see him appearing to the rest of the disciples as well. his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, for these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name.
1: Cool. Thanks, Wayne. Morning, everyone. Uh, my name's Pete Cheng. if I haven't met you uh, before. Uh, yeah, and, and if you're, you are one of those people, please say day to me afterwards. Um, I'd love to um, kind of find out a bit more about you. Uh, it's a pleasure coming here this morning uh, to open up God's Word, John chapter 20. Um, yeah, it's a fantastic passage, so yeah, I'm excited to be getting into it. Now, we as a family, we, we recently got ourselves a puppy uh, so that, that's very exciting. He's very cute. I even considered putting a photo of him up on the screen, but I decided against it because I thought he'd be too much of a distraction. But yeah, Milo's going pretty well. Uh, his training, it's coming along. Uh, it's a bit of a slow process, kind of two steps forward and you know two, three, four steps back. Um, but a, a puppy is really rewarding, uh, but it does have its challenges too. Uh, and the thing is, since getting a puppy, um, you know, I thought that we had moved on from the kind of newborn stage. But since getting a puppy, it really feels like we're, we're back there. And it actually took my thoughts back to the birth um, of our first child or, or the time when Sonia became pregnant uh, with our first child, Bella. We were super, super excited uh, at the time, and I distinctly remember the time when we went for our first ultras- ultrasound. So there is a picture that's a scan of Bella at 12 weeks of age. Uh, I just, I, I still remember it really vividly. Um, just seeing her on the screen, uh, and it just dawned on me that this baby thing, this pregnancy thing, was really happening. It, it really hit me that. Um, the thing growing in Sonia's belly um, was actually a baby and we were about to become uh, first-time parents. See, when I was able to see with my own eyes um, this little baby growing inside uh, Sonia's belly, it really dawned on me. It really did become real and excitement and trepidation, those sorts of feelings, they started to settle in. We were actually going to become parents for the first time. Now the thing is, we knew that we were pregnant long before uh, that scan took place. See, there was the pregnancy test, you know, you you get the kind of two lines or the cross line, whatever it is, and that kind of confirms that there's a baby growing inside Sonia, that there was a baby growing inside Sonia. There was also the morning sickness. Uh, There was a bit of afternoon sickness and evening sickness as well. Um, There was the heightened sense of smell. Um, Sonia would always tell me, Pete, can you please wind the windows up? I can't stand the car fumes. And I just thought I was being nice and trying to get some fresh air for everyone. But yeah, Sonia could not stand car fumes. had to have windows up, aircon on. and there was those, uh, you know those nail kind of beauty shops? You see them in lots of um, shopping centres and things like that. Sonia would literally um, kind of run past those um, Where whenever we were at the shops. Um, she just could not stand the smell of those, um, yeah, those beauty shops. There was the increased appetite. Uh, that was kind of usually forced upon her by... Um, Keeping the morning sickness at bay, lots of things were really, really different. There were so many signs that Sonia was pregnant. I was just slow on the uptake uh, because it wasn't until I was able to see with my own eyes um, on that ultrasound that I actually believed that we we're going to have a baby, that we we're going to be parents. There were, there were plenty of signs for me to realize that we were pregnant, but it took the sight of Bella on that screen before I actually really believed it. Today, as we focus our attention on John, we meet another individual who's a bit slow on the uptake, a bit like me. Um, You probably know him as Doubting Thomas. And I've got a bit of a soft, soft spot for Thomas. I think it's a bit harsh that down through the ages... That is what he gets known as, the one who doubted. Um, Because the thing is, though, as we'll see today, he actually ends up not remaining in doubt, but believing. Believing that Jesus is God's promised King, the Saviour of the world. And I actually think his doubts become a service for us because he raises many of the questions that we have. And through his interaction with Jesus we too can have some of these doubts and objections resolved. Now, just to set the scene uh, for Thomas and Jesus' interaction with one another, here's a reminder of what's just taken place. Uh, The timing of the events of John chapter 20 relate to the very first Easter. Uh, Jesus has been crucified, but as we saw um, last week on Easter Sunday, he was raised. Jesus has come back from the dead he appeared first to mary and now we see him appearing to the rest of the disciples so pick it up from uh, john chapter 20 verse 19 on the evening of that first day of the week when the disciples were together with the doors locked for fear of the jewish leaders jesus came and stood among them and said peace be with you after this he showed them his hands and side The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I'm sending you. And with that, he breathed on them and said, Receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive anyone's sins, their sins are forgiven. If you do not forgive them, they are not forgiven. So the disciples, they were afraid and lost. Jesus had died at the hands of the Jewish leaders, And they were living in fear that they would be next. Imagine for a second that scenario. See, the guy who you'd put all your hopes in was now dead. The guy who you'd given up everything to follow was condemned as a criminal. The disciples, they would have been crushed. They would have been confused. And more than that, they were fearful of their own lies. But just as all hope appeared to be lost, Jesus appears to his disciples and he comforts them. He he reassures them that it really is him. He shows them his hands and his side, those places where he was pierced on the cross. Nails through his hands, a spear in his side. Jesus really had come back from the dead. Mary really had seen the risen Jesus. There was no body in the tomb for, for Peter and John to find because Jesus was alive. Jesus had come back from the dead just like he said he would. So here the disciples' grief turned to joy, again, just like Jesus said it would before he died. And notice the first thing that Jesus says to his disciples. Peace be with you. He says it to them twice in verse 19 and 21. Now, this was a very typical greeting that the um, Jews employed, a kind of shalom, or the Aussie equivalent being a g'day, how you going? But the thing is, when Jesus says this to his disciples, it means so much more than just a good old g'day. So consider what's just taken place. Jesus has just died, and come back to life for the forgiveness of sins. His last words to the disciples were, it is finished. And he wasn't just referring to his life at that point, he was referring to his whole mission. See, the task of dying in the place of guilty sinners was finished. The task of bearing the sins of the world was finished. The task of reaching out to a lost world with the love of God was finished. Jesus had achieved all that on the cross and we celebrated that last week at Easter. And now, because of all that he's done, Jesus is able to offer peace to his disciples. A peace with God, which prior to his death was simply not possible because Jesus, in his death, has brought about a means by which we can stand in right relationship with God. Um, And this message would have been especially relevant for the disciples because they had all deserted Jesus. They would have been feeling pretty bad about themselves. Not only did they desert Jesus, they failed to believe what Jesus said about himself. Um, they'd let Jesus down and they, they would have been feeling pretty terrible about themselves. But Jesus would have none of it. He offers peace with God to people who had rejected and denied him. And that same offer of peace that Jesus extended to his disciples um, is available for each and every one of us here today. Indeed, more than simply forgiving the disciples and establishing peace with them. Jesus entrusts to them the task of continuing his mission. Now I said earlier that the task of reaching out to a lost world with the love of God uh, was finished in Jesus. That wasn't completely right, because Jesus' mission is a continuing one. It was a mission that the disciples were to take up uh, following Jesus' death and resurrection. And it's a mission that we, likewise, 2,000 years later, are to take up. And the thing is, we're not alone in this mission. See, empowered by the Holy Spirit and armed with the gospel message, we are able to proclaim forgiveness of sins to an otherwise hopeless world. That's the amazing thing about Jesus and the gospel. It is good news because it is a message of love and hope And restoration. It is a is a message of God kind of reaching out to us with his love and rescuing us. It is into this scenario that we encounter Thomas. Now, the interesting thing with Thomas, though, is that he wasn't with the rest of the disciples when Jesus appeared to them on the evening of that first Easter. So verse 24 of John chapter 20. Now, Thomas, also known as Didymus, one of the twelve, was not with the disciples when Jesus came. So the other disciples told him, We've seen the Lord. But he said to them, Unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. Now, this is where Thomas gets his bad rap from. Um, The other disciples tell him of their encounter with Jesus but he won't have a bar of it. And so he lays out the ground rules for his believing in Jesus being alive again. Unless he is able to see Jesus in the flesh for himself, he simply will not believe. So Thomas, ever the sceptic, had to see with his own eyes that the Jesus that he saw tortured, uh, beaten and bloodied just a few days before, was the same Jesus who all these other people claimed was now alive. And it's easy to relate to Thomas's scepticism, isn't it? The fact of the matter is, dead people stay dead. Um, who else in all of human history has come back from the dead? Well, no one. Thomas needed overwhelming proof that Jesus had come back from the dead if he was ever going to believe that fact. And the amazing thing is, Jesus accommodates Thomas in his unbelief. Look at verse 26. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, put your fingers here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. See, a week after Thomas had laid out the grounds for his belief, Jesus gives him just what he had asked for. Notice again Jesus' greeting. Peace be to you, Thomas. Even in your doubts, I'm extending to you an offer of peace. And here I am, Thomas. You, You can see me here in the flesh. Here you have it. Here's my hands where they pierce me. Here's my side where they stab me. And having seen all that right there in front of him, Jesus uh, Thomas is left in no doubt. In verse 28, he proclaims Jesus as his Lord and his God. Having seen with his own eyes, Thomas now believed. The sceptic has now become a believer. And what did Thomas believe? He calls Jesus his Lord and his God. As Lord, Thomas recognises that Jesus as God's promised king. Thomas sees Jesus as the one whom he owes his allegiance to. In declaring Jesus as his Lord, Thomas is ascribing to Jesus um, his place as the ruler over his life. He's saying that Jesus has become for him his number one priority and everything else takes second, third or fourth place. Living for Jesus and seeking his glory was from that point on going to be Thomas's top priority. But to, Thomas also calls Jesus his God. The penny really had dropped for Thomas in this regard. See, earlier in the gospel, when Jesus said that he and the Father are one, and this is Thomas finally seeing that clearly. Uh, This is him getting it, that Jesus truly is God in the flesh. He's the obedient son of the Father. And so when he dies for the sins of the world, he's actually able to take the punishment uh, that we deserve because He is the one that we've caused offence to. Doubting Thomas has now actually become believing Thomas based on the evidence presented before him. But what about us? If Thomas needed to see Jesus before he would believe, how are we expected to believe without that same physical contact that Thomas had with Jesus? Are we expected just to take a leap in the dark, a kind of blind faith that, that many people accuse Christians of having? Absolutely not. Look at what Jesus says in verse 29. Then Jesus told him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed, blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. See, there's an expectation from Jesus that there is sufficient evidence for belief in him apart from his physical presence verse 29 that's our situation isn't it jesus isn't around here for us to kind of see and touch yet he thinks it reasonable that people in our situation would believe in him but how is that different to a blind faith well blind faith is groundless and based on unfounded ideas. Biblical faith, however, has its roots deep in the historical reality of the person of Jesus. We today, were expected to believe in Jesus because the disciples have recorded for us eyewitness testimony of his life, death, and resurrection. Blind faith would be if there was no such thing as this thing here, the Bible, and we're told simply to just believe. But biblical faith, it provides a whole bunch of eyewitness accounts of Jesus' life and says, here you go. We've got it all here. You can check it out for yourself. This thing here is all that you need to come to understand just how who just who it is that Jesus is and all that he's done for you. It's been preserved so that we many, many years later, 2,000 years later, after the fact, can make wise and informed decisions about the person of Jesus. And in the Gospel of John, he wants to draw our attention to specific miraculous signs as the avenue or means by which we might believe. So look at verse 30 and 31. Jesus performed many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. The signs that Jesus uh, performs, they're all kind of contained in the first half of John's gospel. Remember there, he turned water into wine. He healed the sick. He fed many multitudes with a few loaves and fish. He raised Lazarus from the dead. And it might even be said that Jesus' own resurrection was another sign. Now, as impressive as as kind of one or all of those things are, Jesus wants us to see them as more than just amazing and spectacular acts. He wants us to view these spectacular events as signs, as things which point beyond themselves to something greater. That's how signs function, right? Um, we were out on the road the other day and we drove past this sign here. Now, do you think it would have been okay with my kids if I said, oh, wow, look at that sign. It's, it's really bright and colourful. I love the symmetry of kind of those arches up there. It, it's a really nice and memorable sign. Do you, you think that would have been sufficient for my kids? No, no way, right? The, the whole point of a Macca's sign isn't simply that you'd kind of observe it and admire it. You're supposed to see a Macca's sign and, you, and it's, you're supposed to actually enter a store and, and purchase your burger and your chips so that you can devour all that greasy goodness. Well, that's what my kids would like to do anyway. And the same goes for Jesus and his miracles. While Jesus' miracles were extraordinary, they weren't just amazing acts which stood on their own. Jesus' miracles which were signs which pointed to who he was. They help us to see for ourselves that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God. That Jesus is the promised King sent by God. See, God had foretold many hundred years earlier prior to Jesus' coming, um, that he would set all things right, um, that the sick would be healed, the blind would see, the lame would walk, the deaf would hear. So those are the sorts of themes that came out in that Isaiah reading that we had earlier. And, and as you continue to read on in the book of Isaiah, it becomes clear that God's king is the one who's going to achieve these things. Themes like release for the captives, forgiveness of sins. Those are the things that God's king would bring. And when Jesus arrived on the scene, he did all those things. His miracles were proof that he was the king sent by God. The miracles weren't just designed to impress. They were designed to create faith that Jesus truly is God's king and that by le- by believing, we might have life in Him, Not only life right now, but life eternal with God forever. Jesus knew that he was going to die for the sins of the world. That was his mission, and that's why he came to earth. And what's more, he knew that God would raise him from the dead as the ruler of the world. All this was set out for us in the Old Testament, written many hundreds of years before Jesus was born. Thomas was with Jesus and he heard and saw all the things that Jesus did and said when he was alive. Thomas, he had the Old Testament which foretold about God and his king. Thomas should have believed in Jesus even before he'd physically seen Jesus as the risen Lord. All the evidence was there for him to believe. But like me with the pregnancy of Bella, he was a bit slow on the uptake. You know, doubts about Jesus coming back from the dead, they're completely natural. It just doesn't happen. But Jesus says that while the doubts might be normal, um, it's not reasonable to remain in that doubt because the weight of the evidence points to the fact that Jesus really did come back from the dead, that Jesus really was... Who we said he was the son of god god's promised king and the one who's been raised now rules as lord over everything and therein lies the challenge for us today what will you do with the evidence presented before you about the person of jesus maybe you're sitting there thinking wow cool story about Jesus coming back from the dead but I'll pass. Now hopefully there's something in what I've said today that might have tweaked an interest for you as you think about Jesus and what he's done for you. I think it's okay to be a skeptic but a skeptic who's unwilling to change their opinion based on evidence presented before them is just plain stubborn. So have a look. at This is what one of the founding members of the Harvard Law School, Simon Greenleaf, had to say about Jesus' resurrection. So he was a sceptic and he'd set out to disprove the resurrection using well-established legal principles. But this was his conclusion. According to the laws of legal evidence used in courts of law, There is more evidence for the historical fact of the resurrection of Jesus Christ than for just about any other event in history. That's something to think about. Or maybe you're sitting there thinking, oh wow, Jesus coming back from the dead, that's amazing, give me more. You know, you may not be ready just now to call Jesus your Lord and your God, but you might be keen to investigate the evidence a bit more for yourself. I want to encourage you to keep going. Keep searching because the evidence is there. In fact, a great way to investigate the claims of Jesus is through our Life Series. So Jane mentioned it earlier. Um, There is one starting up in about a month's time. Life would be an amazing opportunity for you to come and see for yourself what Jesus offers. And if you're here today and you're able to confidently proclaim Jesus as your Lord and your God, praise God because of that. Though doing so will come at a cost. Don't get me wrong, I reckon following Jesus is amazing because following Jesus means that I love the experience of peace with God. I can experience that right now. I can know full well that my sins are forgiven. I love the fact that my life now has meaning. I, have, I love the fact that right now I have hope and certainty of a future with God because Jesus has done it all for me. But proclaiming Jesus as Lord and God means that he is now boss of my life. Life now is lived in honour and submission to him. He takes priority over everything else in life, whether that be our spouse, kids, family, career, everything. Jesus is now number one, not ourselves. Our lives are no longer our own. But that is the only right thing to do because Jesus is the eternal King. Let's pray. Uh, Heavenly Father, we thank you so much that you raised Jesus to life. Thank you that he's now the Lord of all and reigns on high. Father, for us who believe, may we all live with Jesus as our King. May we put his plans and his desires before our own, seeking his honour, his glory, his renown. Father, may may you help in us and, and embolden us to take this message of love and forgiveness to a world that needs your love. And Lord, for those of us who are searching for answers about Jesus and Christianity, may you speak truth into their lives that they might be able to make wise and informed decisions about Christ, your King. We pray these things through his mighty name. Amen.